Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. All right, we're going to carry on with our, our series on Acts. I'm actually really excited to be doing it, uh, this series throughout the summer. It's like a Bible study. I was talking to my wife about it yesterday, and she said it's, it's good doing a Bible study together as a church and just going through a book. Uh, I have found it to be very, um, enri- like, just rich. I mean, I know I've said that before. The, the Word of God is a treasure, but it is something else when you just slow down. Like, when you take you know, a few days to just go through a small chunk of scripture and you examine every verse upside down, side to side, read it backwards, flip around the words. No, but really prayerfully with commentaries, reading, looking at, you know, historical context, looking at prophetic context, looking at how New Testament, Old Testament intertwine. It honestly is so much fun. I wish you could all do it. But you can. You just might not be able to all have my job. But you can all do that and I would encourage you to try doing that over the summer. But we do have a church-wide prayer request to get to before we get into the Word together. And I'm very excited. I believe that they're going, uh, camp is begin. well, the camp staff are being trained. They're going up today. Am I right on that? Yep. <laughs> There's a bunch of you in here that are doing that. That's wonderful. Thank you very much for, for serving. Um, but I want, to, I want us to pray for camp and Gen Z. So we need to be praying for the staff, the volunteers, and the campers, uh, all of the above. I know I've asked you to put things on your fridge before. This would be one of those fridge requests, or even better, journal requests. Put it in your journal. Um, I like to use the margins, but we got to keep praying for them this entire time. Uh, Something that we've learned, I think, the last three years, and that is we cannot take anything for granted. Ministry doesn't just happen. Fruit for the kingdom doesn't just happen. It happens when the Holy Spirit comes and empowers it to happen. And and for that to happen, we need to be on our knees in prayer uh, and and worship and and giving it over to the Lord. So with that, here's the uh, church-wide prayer request. You'll notice on there, there is a camp medic still needed for July 13th to 16th. So that's coming up, I think, in two weeks or just under two weeks. Uh, We still need a medic there, so please be praying. And if you have the qualifications to do that, I would ask you to prayerfully consider if God is asking you to do it. Uh, do it that way. I'm not trying to guilt anyone into it, but ask the Lord what he wants and go from there. For the rest of us, let's pray that the Lord raises up a medic. We need a medic. Amen? All right. Hopefully we don't need them too much, though. So <laughs> we, need, we need a person that's qualified to be a medic. How would I put it that way? <laughs> Hopefully we don't need their services very much. Okay. Uh, ready to pray? See it on there? Okay. So for those who are visiting, uh, you do not have to pray out loud with us, but if you'd like to join in, you can. For those who call this home, we like to start our services off praying out loud together. It's kind of crazy and fun, but that's what we do here. So three, two, one, let's pray, church.
Lord, we thank you for that camp, and we thank you for the many years of blessing that it has been to, to both campers and staff and those serving there, Lord. It's a blessing to both. It's a blessing to give and receive. But Lord, we recognize that that camp is yours. And so we, we come to you and we bring it and we submit that camp over to you. And we are asking that you provide the medic, but also that you would cover that camp with your spirit this year. Lord, we don't take that for granted. We know that fruit doesn't just grow on its own unless you cause it to grow. So Lord, we ask that you would bear fruit there, that you would bear fruit in the, in the lives of the campers and in the staff. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So a quick uh, recap of last week, and then we'll move on to this week. Ooh, got eyelash in the eye. Uh, last week, we looked at Acts 2, and we went through an extensive seven verses uh, and spent the whole time there. But we looked at the fellowship of the early believers and how they were centered around action. Uh, so they lived their beliefs. They modeled it. They lived it. They shared it. And we looked at those four verbs, right? And, and they were connect, grow, serve, and go. And those were kind of those action words that their community was centered around. And those are action words that we too can be centered around in our lives to fulfill kingdom purposes on the earth. But we also looked at how all of those things need to come out of a place of prayer. And uh, if you'll recall, we, we talked a bit about the early uh, church and the early believers' prayer life and how it was very different than what we often see in the West. Uh, where we're trying to encourage people to spend daily time, they were spending two times a day in prayer. They were going to the temple daily or regularly and spending time together praying and worshiping and getting into the Word together in their homes. Uh, they really did center their lives around the gospel. And that's a really good thing to think about is what would it look like if my life, if if today I went home and carved out some time to look at my life, whether it's finances or free time or hobbies or, or work, all that stuff, what would it look like if the gospel, the good news, is at the center of all of that? And, and maybe you find that the gospel isn't quite at the center. Maybe it's off to the side. Well, how, what steps could you take to, to put the gospel in the center of your life? And by the way, I don't think that means we stop having hobbies, we stop, you know, spending time in nature, we stop eating and taking care of ourselves and working. No, we do all of those things, but we do them all for the glory of God. That's what Paul said. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And that is we follow him in everything. But that's not what the service is about today. I did ask you guys to think about, a, uh, you know, imagine with me, because we will talk about this more in fall, but I'll plant the seed again. Imagine with me, if we have a church of 2,000 and half the people decided to take up the mantle of the Great Commission saying, each one reach one. I'm going to try to reach. I'll be intentional to pray for, to love, to serve, and disciple one person to Jesus. However long that takes. By the way, that doesn't mean you're just sharing the gospel with them all the time. They might be closed to the gospel. It might mean you start by being kind and building a relationship. There's lots of different ways. You've got to pray and ask the Lord and he'll give you strategies. Uh, but often people aren't just open right away. Sometimes they are. So there's not a cookie cutter approach to that. But what would it look like if a thousand people committed to each one reach one? this next year. I think it could be something special. I would love to be a part of that. I like being a part of this church anyways, um, but that's what we talked about last week. So now we're painting the picture to get back into Acts, and 
You know, Acts starts, remember, Jesus has, he's, like, it, it, the first couple of verses, he basically uh, says, you know, he's been there for 40 days, teaching them on the kingdom of God. Now he's ascending into heaven. The angel says, in the same way that he went up, he's coming down. I can't wait to fall. We're going to actually preach on that alone and get you to really try to visualize and imagine that. Think about it. Like, he went up physically. They saw him go up into the clouds, into the first heaven, second heaven, and all the way to the third. He's coming back down in physical form like that. It's going to be incredible. Um, way better than any action hero movie you've ever seen. It's going to be way better. It will be epic to a whole new level. Uh, but he's, he's gone up now, and the disciples are there, and he, they have instruction to wait, to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so they've gone, they, they're praying, they're waiting, the Holy Spirit comes, Pentecost happens, there are tongues of fire on, on the apostles and the disciples, and they start speaking in other tongues. In fact, not just spiritual languages, this time they're actually speaking in other, or, uh, other human languages, so that all of the crowds are bewildered, right? They're all wondering, like, how do these regular people, how do they suddenly know our language? And Peter preaches his first uh, message uh, at, at Pentecost right after. Okay, so we're now from there. Moving on to last week, we talked about, you know, the, the fellowship of the early church. So they responded. They, they received the Holy Spirit. And they went out and they began to preach. But they also, they, they also uh, grew a very connected, bonded community that was very attractive to the world around them. They were defined by generosity. They were radically, radically, radically generous. They didn't hold on to their possessions, their stuff. They didn't, they didn't see it as their stuff. They saw everything that they had as an opportunity to go and love other people. People were more important than things, than possessions to the early church. And with that, empowered by the Spirit, empowered by prayer, they went out and they began to preach the good news and, and, uh, and, and live their lives for God. Now we're going to pick up right there. But before we pick up, I just want to, um, I just want to make one comment because... We talk Old Testament to New Testament. And one of the things I want to accomplish in today's study, there's two things. Uh, one, we're going to talk about the gospel of the kingdom. Because that's what uh, Acts chapter 3 really focuses on. But first, I really want to talk about the New Testament and refer to it as the continued testament. And the reason I want to say continued rather than new, because sometimes we think new and old. Old things you what? You throw out. New things are now the thing that we embrace. We throw out the old, out with the old, in with the new. Okay, so let's, let's not do that, although I'm not trying to say that we have to go and not call it the New Testament anymore. I'm just going to challenge us to think of it as the continued testament. Just a continuation. It's all the same book. It's all the same story written by the same author. Incredibly so. And so I'll, I'll be referencing lots during today's one chapter all of the various references back to the Old Testament. Because if, if you don't, you, you know, sometimes people will tell you to unhitch, a famous author said that, you know, last year or two years ago, unhitch from the Old Testament. Many other believers are saying things like, we don't, you know, you don't need the Old Testament, just focus on the New Testament, or, you know, God... The Old Testament, they were just writing to their best understanding of who God was, but they didn't get it right, and a lot of the things that said in the Old Testament don't actually matter anymore. You, and so on and so forth. Okay, if you don't understand the Old Testament, I'm going to make a statement here that I want to, to sink in. If you don't understand the Old Testament, if you're, not, if you're not in there embracing it, you will never be able to properly understand the New Testament. You cannot. That is exactly what was modeled in Scripture. They had a very good understanding of the Old Testament, which informed the New Testament. In fact, 
much of the New Testament, that's why I called it the Continued Testament, much of the New Testament is actually referencing the Old Testament, including end times. A lot of the weird stuff that we hear on end times, and we'll talk about this more in fall, really comes out of a lack of understanding of the Old Testament. When you take the Old Testament out and you just read the prophetic, you know, revelations in, or uh, visions in revelations, it's easy to start getting all these Westrocentric kind of interpretations that are centered around us and us living our best life now. That is not what it's about. It's, it is a Jewish book. So anyhow, with that said, picture up here. You maybe have seen this. It's been floating around the internet, and I like to every now and then uh, steal something from the internet. Although this doesn't have a, a copyright. And the guy who did it, I'll give him credit. His name is Chris Harrison. Okay, so he's getting credit for this. I didn't do it. What is that? What is this rainbowy looking thing that's got all these lines on it? I'll tell you what it is. There is a line on the bottom that represents the Bible. And you'll see it starts with a white one and then it goes to a gray scale. And then right about three quarters of the way down, there's another white one. Okay, each color is a book of the Bible and the white ones signify the beginning of the Old and New Testament. Make sense? All right? All of those, every time there is a reference, a cross-reference back and forth, each one of those lines represents a cross-reference in the Bible where the Old Testament and New Testament and Scripture is interpreting Scripture and it's going back and forth. So kind of picture my Bible being up there like that with all of those lines back and forth like this. Let that sink in. That is what you're looking at there. If you, can anyone count all those lines? <laughs> no one. Okay, that is 63,779 cross-references in the Bible. Think about that. 40 authors, 66 books, written over the span of, what, 1,500 years-ish. How is that even possible? One author. It's absolutely beautiful. The Continued Testament. Okay, so it's really important if we're going to be studying the Word, and I will, I will continue to encourage you, unashamedly, study the Word. Get in here daily. Get in here as much as possible. Even consider things like, how much time am I spending in the Word versus how much time do I spend on media? Something to consider. What are we wiring our brains to be like, to think like, to act like? What are we patterning our lives after? Scripture or the world? Because don't kid yourself, what we find on TV, and I'm not against, you know, TV. I, we have a TV. We watch movies. I, we enjoyed a good one yesterday. It was very good, very entertaining. But don't kid yourself into thinking that they're, that they're also not preaching to you. Media preaches to you. They're trying to preach. Ads preach to you. Everyone's preaching to you. They're trying to get you to think, to give your focused attention, to give your time, your money. They're trying to get you to do something, to buy into something. So we need to be really careful that we are buying into the full counsel of the word. That is not what we're preaching on today, so i got to move on. Okay, so, point. Don't let anyone tell you that the Old Testament is irrelevant or unneeded. It's, it's relevant. Now you might say, yeah, but I've gone into there and it's hard to understand. Yeah, I understand that too. You know, my first Bible, and I gave it to my son, Austin, but uh, my first Bible, like I, I adopted, I wasn't every day, I was five days a week when I became a believer. Five days a week, I took the weekends off. I don't know why I came up with that, but I did. And I just started cover to cover, and I read through the Bible every year. That's what I did. That was my plan for the first, I think, decade I followed the Lord. And the beginning, you should have seen how many things were highlighted, uh, question marks, what does this mean, or why is this in the Bible, or doesn't this contradict this, and how does this work with... I, like, my Bible is full of writing like that. I didn't understand it right away. I didn't give up, though, either. 
I pressed in. I understood that I'm not smart enough to figure it out. Holy Spirit, would you please reveal yourself to me in your word? And I kept at it. I persevered. And the Lord rewarded that perseverance. And it was amazing, like, as the years went on. And it didn't take 10 years until it happened. Like, as the year went to the second year to the third year, it's like all of these questions, it's like all of these pieces started connecting. And you start seeing how they connect. And over time, you just see this beautiful story. It's one story. But yeah, as you're going through it the first time and the second time, there's lots to remember and see. Sometimes you read something and you don't have the full context because you haven't read the whole story yet. Make sense? So read the full story, get it in you, understand it, and then move forward from there. All right. Now we'll actually get to Acts. We're going to Acts 3. And we did do the first verse last week, but I will unashamedly again uh, do the first one again. Oops, that's not right. Here it is. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried. Remember, the ninth hour is 3 p.m. It's their evening prayer time uh, for sacrifice. They, They went to the temple every day on that. All right, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him. So you can just imagine he's sitting there, right? So he's lame, lame from birth, he says. So so they think about 40 years or so. 40 years he's lame. And he's being brought to the temple to ask for alms, to be cared for. And by the way, Jewish culture was really good for this. In fact, they were known for it. They, they, they put charity at a high place. Now, they, didn't, they, weren't, <laughs> they, they weren't charitable necessarily to everyone. If you could work, they expected you to work. But for those who couldn't work, the Jews, the Jews were actually really good at taking care of people, which is awesome. Anyhow, that's why he's there, because that's where people would give alms and help him give the things needed for daily life. So now, Peter and John are looking at him. So he's got their attention, he's asked for something, they're on their way to prayer, and he looks at them, and what do they say? Well... Peter directed his gaze at him and said, look at us. So he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. You can imagine he must have felt some disappointment there. I have no silver and gold. Have you ever had that? I I don't know if you've had that recently, but with a cashless society and cards, often you want to give someone, you know, people are asking for, for money or they're asking for food in the city, and you're like, I actually don't have anything. I'd love to help you out, but I don't have anything. Uh, We've often gotten gift cards for that reason, just so we have something on us to give. But anyways, so he's expecting to get something, and the first thing they say is, silver and gold, I don't have. So you can imagine he's feeling, oh, the letdown. Like, why'd you say, look at me? I thought I was going to get something for sure. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up immediately. His feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Wow. Can you imagine being there for that? I mean, everyone knows him. Lame since birth. Everyone knows. This is not an act. It's not a charade. And, and you see him get up in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this guy that was just crucified. In his name, this guy gets up and walks, and his ankles and his, his, his infirmities are all healed, and he gets up and he begins to leap. All right. 
So let's take a look at this. The, the miracle, the lame shall leap. So there's a few things I want to look at this that are, that are significant on the lame shall leap. And the first one is, the lame man sought help. So we're going to look at this for multiple reasons. And by the way, what I love to do here, when God moves, this is something that's always fascinated me. Uh, he's like a master chess player. Uh, essentially with chess, the, the better players are able to look more moves ahead. They're able to anticipate more moves so, so that every move they make is able to kind of counter multiple moves that you could make thinking three or four head, uh, moves ahead. The Lord is like that. Everything he does, he fulfills multiple purposes like we just saw in the Bible, right? You get one word and there's 63,000 references going back and forth, 66 books, over 40 authors, over 1,500 years, and it all works together for one grand story without error. Right? But everything he does is like that. So it's always multiple purposes being fulfilled. So we're going to look at the healing side first. And the lame man sought help. And the reason why this is significant as it relates to us today, and I think uh, a problem we have in our culture, at least maybe it's just me, we struggle asking for help. Is there anybody in here that has a difficult time asking for help? It's hard to ask for help. I mean, you're, you're make, there's the one side, there's pride, right? I, self, I can do it by myself. I don't need anybody else. But even that, I think, is a facade for something deeper underneath where we're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of being let down. We're afraid of disappointment. We don't want to ask and risk hearing no. And, and this is true in our prayer life. Yeah, absolutely, yes. I think, you know, James talks about you have not because you ask not. I think that's true for a lot of people. I think there's a lot of things we miss out on because we're not running to God and partnering with him. We're running away from God because we're afraid if we go to him, he'll reject us. But it holds true also in our families, in our friendships. Many people don't actually know how to express their emotional needs. What I need inside or their basic needs, or help for whatever project that they're working on, or a deadline that they have to have. It is hard to ask for help. And the first thing I, I want us to focus on this morning is that the lame man sought help. He wasn't too prideful to recognize his need for others. And I think that's a model for all of us. Um, and, and so, with that, we're actually going to just ask a question on there. So, where do you need God's help? I want you to think about it right now. I already asked the first question. You got a big need? If you don't have a big need, I'll tell you what your big need is. To see your need. Because if you don't see your need, you'll never go to him. What's your big need? I got a laundry list. I'm needy. I can't do anything apart from him. I know it sounds cliche, but I actually mean that. You should see my journal. I would never let you. But if I did, <laughs> suddenly, and by the way, if you ever find it, don't read it. <laughs> and I won't read yours. <laughs> Anyhow, but if you did, you'd see the margins there littered. And I run out of time. Sometimes it's stressful because I'm like, I have so many things, I can't even list them all and still have a quality devotional time within an hour and a half. It's hard. What's your need? Let's just do this now. 
Why wait? You stuck in sin? Has anxiety consumed you? Are you stuck in hopelessness? You need hope? Feel like you have so many balls juggling in your life, you're not even sure what's up from down? Maybe you have a broken relationship, trauma from your past. Maybe it's just basic needs. I don't know where, how we're going to pay for the bills this next month. Inflation's going up. We have no security. Let's ask. If you want to write it down, you can. Or just do it in your heart. Lord, as I pray for myself and for our congregation, I'm reminded of your, your letters to the seven churches in Revelations and, and, and your warning that it's actually a dangerous place to be in when, when we think we're without need. And so, Lord, my, my prayer is simple, and that is that you would show each one of us, that you would reveal it in our lives, our great need for you. At whatever cost that is, Lord, we want you to lead us into knowing our need for you. Because you are everything we need, and everything we need can be found in you. Thank you for your faithfulness in, asking, in answering our prayers and hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now we can move on to the next part. So the healing benefited the man, yes, obviously, right? But it also fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And this is important. So um, Jesus in, in uh, Luke 7, 22, he talks about, the, uh, he fulfills Old Testament prophecy and he talks about the, the blind can see and the deaf can hear. He's referring back to the Old Testament. And now Peter is going to do the same thing. Well, Jesus, through Peter, does the exact same thing and does it through the, the nature of how he was healed. So he's a lame man. The lame man is significant. And when the lame man is healed, what did he get up and do? Leap. Is that a leap? Does that look weird? I'm not going to do that again. Okay. Anyhow, he leaped. Now, what is significant about him being lame and leaping? Let's take a look. Isaiah 35, 5 to 6 says this, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the, leap, the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This was a clear reference back in the, in the way, the type of healing it was, and in the response to healing. It's a clear reference back to a messianic age prophecy found in Isaiah. And if you read Isaiah 35, the entire thing is about the coming of the Lord, the messianic age, when that would be implemented. And it's a wonderful passage to read because you look at all the promises of God and how he's going to restore the fortunes of Israel and Jacob, and they're going to love him forevermore, they're going to know him, and all the things that are going to change. And one of the signs of the messianic age was the lame man shall leap. And so this is significant, even right here in Acts 3, we're starting, not only is the man healed, which benefits him, but at the same time, he's just demonstrated before all of them the Old Testament coming, uh, coming to fruition right before their very eyes. And so that is significant. And the re like, think about the people that are gathered. 
They're all going to afternoon prayer, or evening prayer, they called it. They're going to evening prayer. They're gathered around the temple. These are all Jews. Well, most of them, or they are people who've adopted Yahweh as their God. But they're all going to the temple to pray. And they're recognizing what's happening here. It's not just a miracle. It's a miracle that was foretold in Scripture, and that is significant. All right? So they see that. Only God could do this which moves on to the third thing that I want to grab from these verses, and that is the significance of the name. Now, we always just pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been a Christian for any length of time, that is just what we do, amen? In Jesus' name, amen. That's what we do. It's in Jesus' name. Why do we say that? Why do we have to say in Jesus' name, amen? Like, why do we even do that? When did that start, or why is that significant? Well, that's another thing that kind of points back to the Old Testament. And if you look at uh, 1 Kings 8.29, it says that, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house. The house is the temple, right? So it's the, it's the dedication of the temple that's happening here. And he's praying that your eyes may be open to, the, to this house, your temple, where you preside, God, right? Uh, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servants offer towards this place. So obviously God is, is everywhere. He's not just in a temple. He's everywhere. Yes, we know that. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. But his name, their understanding was his name resides in the temple, and they were pointing their prayers towards the temple. That makes sense? So God's name is there. He is God. His name is there. They really revered God's name. We've lost some of that the reverence for names and the meaning of names. But they had a high reverence for names, and the name of God was highest of all. In fact, many Jews wouldn't even say any form of his name. Even to this day, practicing Jews often won't even write out his full name. They'll omit things. So they have a reverence for the name. Anyways, in his temple, that is where his name dwells. So you have now a lame man being healed, and he's leaping, which fulfills Old Testament prophecy, so they knew it must be God. And then it's done in the name of God, or, or not. It's done in the name of who? Jesus, making a clear reference and connecting point back now to Isaiah and to, and to 1 Kings, their understanding. Jesus is now fulfilling that messianic promise. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is God who answers prayer. That declaration would have been deafening to all of those Jews that were gathered. So as we go through this, I know some, some, you might know this already, you might not. Try, try to imagine it through that early, uh, through the early eyes of, of the early Jews, sorry, right? Try to imagine it through the eyes of the early Jews. It would have been deafening. So you have, one, miraculous healing, right? So it's a miraculous healing. But it's not just any miraculous healing, right? It's the lame that leap. It's the, it's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy healing. So it's a healing, yes, but it's a, it's a prophetic fulfillment healing, which is incredible, and it's done in Jesus' name. Equally, Messianic age is here, and Jesus is the Messiah. And this is all happening within a short period of time after Jesus has just been crucified. Mobs are after him yelling, crucify, crucify, crucify. And now these disciples have claimed he rose from the dead. He's appeared to many. Now they have the Holy Spirit. They're talking in other tongues. They're living radically different. They look different. Acts 4 says they recognized because of the boldness of Peter and John, they recognized and their wisdom. They knew that they had been with Jesus. It's an incredible thought. Anyways, all of this is pointing to that Jesus that they had killed is the Messiah, and the Messianic age is upon us. So their response to this, and that's why it makes more sense now when you look at their response, the response is... 
And the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple and asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened, common with a miracle, right? Common with a miracle. Wouldn't you be filled with wonder and amazement? I certainly would. And, and then he says, well, he clung the, the lame man to Peter and John. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's portico. Is that not incredible? They ran. That's how, like, this is how mind-blowing it was to them. They understood this wasn't just a healing. It was all of those things that I said. It was a healing that fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy of the Messianic age, and it was done in the name of God, which Peter said was Jesus. And they knew that God wouldn't allow those, those prophetic pieces. I mean, that was the proof of God. We'll talk about that at the end of the message. That was one of the proofs for how do you know if a prophet is, if it is the Lord speaking through a prophet? Well, it's through prophetic fulfillment. So them seeing prophetic fulfillment done in Jesus' name is profound, causes them to run together. They want to know more. What just happened? So try to get your mind into that. I know we've lost some of our shock and awe. I don't know that we ever, do we ever get utterly astounded anymore? I wonder sometimes if, if media or the news or whatever, like we become so tone deaf. There's so much stimulation in the world. We become so tone deaf. We've seen it all. So we don't get like that anymore. But they had never seen anything like this. They understood what it meant. And so they rushed together. Now, it doesn't say, you know, because they saw the miracle and, the king, and they knew the, the you know, prophecies fulfilled, it doesn't say that everyone was saved. You still need saving faith. And that's why you have the miracle. And now comes Peter with the message. And the message is the gospel of the kingdom. And remember, Jesus said in Mark that this gospel of the kingdom must go out into all nations and then the end will come. So it's one of, that's another prophetic uh, statement that has to happen before the return of Jesus. That the gospel must go to all nations or people groups. It has to go to all. Okay, so anyways, this is the gospel that's going out. It's not just the, or it's not just any good news. It is the good news of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. And that's very important that we get that right, that we don't get a perverted gospel. And there are perversions on the gospel that are out there now that point you more towards living your best life now than laying down your life now and living for the second coming of Christ, which is what the gospel of the kingdom is all about. So anyhow, let's go on to the gospel. So Miracles are good, people in awe, but awe doesn't produce saving faith. Miracles, works, and sharing the gospel all work together to point people towards Jesus, and that is what the gospel is all about. And I, the only reason I say that is sometimes, and maybe you've felt this, you know, we talk about friendship evangelism. Friendship evangelism is good as long as you are praying for that person regularly and then looking for opportunities to share Jesus with them. Does that make sense? And some, you know, our culture doesn't like the idea of don't, don't shove Jesus down my throat. Well, to be fair, they're inconsistent because they're shoving a lot of things down our throats. So the other problem with that is we're not just talking about debating ideas. If you believe in the good news, then you believe Jesus is God. And by implications, you believe that he came and died for our sins. He had to die for our sins because all of us are in sin. The wages of our sin is death. But beyond that, you also believe Jesus is coming back. 
And when he comes back, he's going to conquer and reign and rule over the earth and the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. And all people will stand before him and be judged. Only those who call upon the name of Jesus in this lifetime will be saved. If that's true, then regardless of people saying, don't put it down my throats, we should care about sharing this good news with other people. That matters. Now, it also matters how we do it. And we need to speak the truth in love. Just going around telling everyone you're going to go to hell, that is not the best way of doing it. Demonstrate your love, yes. Demonstrate, serve people. Show people that they are more important than things in your life. That they're valuable. You'll, they're so valuable you'll give them your time and focus and attention. And then share the gospel with them. It is the power of God for salvation. Don't hold back. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm not going to do that in the 11. Oh, don't even know where I am. I was getting excited. Oh yeah, friendship evangelism. So share the gospel, okay? So yes, love and serve people and demonstrate the gospel. Do that and share the gospel. Share it. Power of God for salvation. All right, now let's go back to the Bible here. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. What a charge. So what is significant here? Okay, well, there's a few things. First, Jesus is God. All right? So Jesus is God. Peter points away from himself and points to Jesus. I didn't do this. I didn't fix this man. I didn't heal him. This isn't me. This is God. You are witnessing God at work and God in the name of Jesus. Jesus is God. But it's more significant than that because of the reference that he uses. He uses the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Right? So Jesus' name brought healing that fulfilled there we go. This is the one I wanted. Um, that fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Now, where was he going back to? Exodus. Now, we hear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're like, oh yeah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We've heard that lots. There's probably songs about it, right? And, uh, and we just know that. Okay. They understand something. He's pointing back to a claim that Yahweh had made in the Old Testament, saying, this will be my name, one of his many names, throughout all the generations. This is my name. But it's more than that. He said this at a very specific time in history, during a specific time in Israel's history and what he was doing there. And this is why it's important. Let's look at Acts. Exodus 3, verse 6. But he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his faith, for he was afraid to look at God. This is happening during the Exodus. By the way, I love Moses' like, <laughs> Moses's response to, to seeing God is fear. And not just awe, he hid his face, not just because of awe. There's actual fear. That's why in Revelations, John, Jesus actually has to bend over and says, fear not. That's why constantly God is saying, fear not. Because truly looking at him for who he is actually strikes terror because he's that powerful and amazing and breathtaking and terrifying, actually, would be terrifying. Anyways, 
he was afraid to look at God. So I am the God, the father, uh, God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he's introducing himself. A little bit later now, Exodus 3.15, God says, Say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forevermore, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all the nations. Now it gets better, but what Peter's doing here, he's linking Jesus with the Exodus. And I think Pastor Ray, he maybe mentioned it, if not, I'm sure, we'll, I'm sure he did, but talked about uh, Jesus, Moses being a prototype, a foreshadowing of Jesus. Okay, so that is absolutely true. Moses even alludes to that, that God would raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and you shall listen to him. So he's talking there about a prophetic promise in the future, that there's going to be another Moses that's going to be raised up that's going to be like me, that's going to lead you to ultimate deliverance. Another messianic prof, uh, promise, right? Peter is linking them here. So just by using the name, and everyone there listening again will have understood this. That's why we have to, we have to read our, our continued testament this way, recognizing it's constantly pointing back, and they're constantly pointing back not just to anything in the Old Testament, but to messianic prophecies about the coming Messiah. That's what they were constantly doing. Jesus did it again and again and again, and it confounded the religious leaders. And now Peter is doing the exact same thing. He's pointing back. And by the way, where did Peter get all this understanding from? Two things, two answers to that, very quick ones. It's not in my notes. One, the Holy Spirit. Okay? Don't, like, absolutely yes. Walk in step of the Spirit. He will show you what to speak. We're even given a promise in persecution. We don't have to fear. God will speak through us. That's incredible. But more than that, he was well studied as well. And he had the 40 days where God was explaining. Jesus explained all the passages about Jesus and about the kingdom of heaven. So he had just been taught by the master himself, which would have been incredible. All right. So anyways, Peter's pointing, or connecting Jesus with the God of the Exodus and Moses, saying he is that second prophet. He is the Messiah that was promised that will lead Israel into a forever freedom from their captives and will reign forevermore. That is what he's saying. That, that God is this God. The prophet Moses spoke of as Jesus. He is the Messiah, your Redeemer. And then there's one more in here. And that is, uh, oh, I actually don't have it on the slide. But he, he does say then, um, glorified his servant Jesus. And even that has significant meaning. There it's referencing back, and just for sake of time, I don't have time to go through all of them, Isaiah 53. So even like, <laughs> that's what I love about this. Everything in his message Almost like line for line. It's like completely made up of scripture. They had their Old Testament of the current scriptures of the day. Line by line, Peter is straight up teaching them from the Bible. That's what he's doing. From their Bible, he's basically just walking through and saying, look, fulfilled. Look at this. This is, this is who that's speaking of. Jesus is him. That's what Peter's doing here. It's pretty amazing. So anyways, moving on to the next thing. So first, Jesus is God. Right? Second, Jesus is our Savior. He came to save us from our sins. So it says here, You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. Wow, you imagine being there, be feeling cut to the heart, but how bold that is. He's looking at them saying, You killed him, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name. Again, referencing the name of God. That's why it was so important, the name 
The name of God dwells in the temple. It is by his name. Faith in his name has made this man strong. When you see and know, and, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. All right, there's a few things here that I just absolutely love. But first, Peter is just bold and straight to the point. He doesn't, he doesn't mince words here like we do in Canada. He's unapologetic in saying, you killed him. This is the Holy One. Again, all references, by the way, if you, Old Testament references, we don't have time to go through all of them, right? But the author of life, uh, the, uh, where, what does it say? The Holy and the Righteous One. Only God had those titles. So Peter is making some bold claims here about Jesus' deity. He's not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He is God, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the author of life. And he came down here to, to be your Savior, and you killed him. Gulp. And then what I love is he goes right on to a side of compassion that we often miss out on. This is what I was getting at before. And he says, but brothers, I know you acted in ignorance. I love that line. You know what he does? He gives them all grace. Instead of judging their motives, instead of judging where they're coming from, and I know exactly why you did it. You're so self-centered. You're so this, and you're just about, he didn't do any of that. He let God be judge on those things. He just said what he could see. He judged the action he could see. You killed Jesus. And then he gave what 1 Corinthians 13, talking about love, he gave them what's, what, what's called the benefit of the doubt. He believed the best in them. These people that just killed Jesus. And that is pretty incredible. I thought, what an example of truth and love that we're getting right here in Acts, in this first message. Right? It's truth. You killed him. You're guilty. I know you did but I know you didn't, did it in ignorance. You didn't understand. And I get that. You didn't understand what was going on. You killed him. Okay. So uh, God, you killed him. God raised him from the dead. And he goes on to say, God planned this. It doesn't excuse you from your sins, but God planned this. Go back to Isaiah 53. Read all of Isaiah 52 and 53. Uh, I wish we had... Uh, you know, the time just to go through all of them. It's just overwhelming the amount of times it's doing this and going back and forth. But God planned it by means of, of evil man. He performed it, right? But, but this is what he's talking about. But, uh, and, and the last part here, well, here, I do have actually one of them on here. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, Isaiah 53 has one of the clearest pictures of Jesus, the suffering Messiah, that is found in Scripture. But four of five, and, and this is part of the mystery. You know in Ephesians 1, it talks about this mystery that was revealed that no one knew, and there's this mystery, and you can kind of feel Paul's anticipation. He's just like so excited to say, I know the mystery, right? He, got, he has it, like he has a secret, and he's just bursting at the seams. Right? This mystery that was hidden for all time. No one saw it. The devil didn't see it. The angels didn't see it. Like God's own people didn't see it. But it was hidden in the Old Testament the entire time. God's plan. Masterful. They all missed it. And what was that? Two comings of Jesus. Two comings of the Messiah. No one understood. How is he getting around? There's so many problems to fix. I mean, wages of sin is death. We all sin. We all deserve death. How are we going to like not... Like, how are we going to live up to this? We have the different covenants, and we keep failing our part. 
so how are we going to live up and fulfill the covenant? It doesn't make sense. Like, how are we going to do this? But then the Messiah comes and he conquers and he establishes a kingdom that's going to reign forevermore. There were some confusing passages, and most of the Old Testament passages talked about the restoration of all things. So most of what you're going to find about the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament are going to talk about the restoration of all things going into eternity. Okay, so that's, that's the good part. And I'm glad it focuses lots on that. We need to focus more on that. So most of it focuses forward. But there was a few troubling passages and, 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 and verses scattered around. Actually, four of the five main prophets uh, talked about it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Zechariah. All referenced this, this, these lines about a suffering servant. Which would have been very confusing. Now we look at it with our, you know, New Testament, Christocentric, we know the gospel lenses, and we say, well, yeah, duh. Like, Jesus comes the first time, he dies on the cross, he's raised back to life, goes to heaven, sends the Holy Spirit, now we're just waiting for him to return, right? So he comes twice. They didn't know that. So in their mind, when they're reading Isaiah, and when Isaiah is being taught in the temple, because they didn't necessarily read it, but when it's being read in the temple, there are people going like this and not, not quite getting it, maybe afraid to ask a question. Uh, like, what's this whole thing about a suffering servant part? Like, that by his wounds, like that doesn't sound right. Peter's pointing back and saying, you guys didn't see it, but this was prophesied all along. Four of their five major prophets all talked about a suffering servant. Zechariah, in fact, references it clearly. It's, it's weird, because at one point, it's like he's talking, he's coming on a horse to conquer, and then it talks about him coming on a donkey and to serve, and you're like, huh, well, which one is it? Two comings, two, right? Isn't that neat? Are you guys enjoying going through just one chapter like this and seeing how it all relates back and forth? Like, is that, I hope maybe it's not fun. It's, it's enjoyable, isn't it, to see this? Read your Bible this way. And by the way, even non-cross, like, your Bibles will have little, like, notations everywhere. Go back and read them. This book just comes alive when you realize how intricate it is. Anyways. Whoops. I just gotta slow down a little bit. And also get through the whole message. But I guess we'll preach again. Um, all right. So they have that. You killed them. You killed them. God, or sorry, you killed them. God raised them, right? But God planned it. And it was testified in the, New, in the Old Testament all along that Jesus would come and he would suffer. So talk about the grace, right? You killed them, and that is sin. You've got to turn from that wickedness. But you also need to recognize that God planned this from the beginning. It wasn't done to him. He allowed it to happen. He ordained it to happen so that he could pay for your sins, so that he could defeat death, and so that he could defeat the devil once and for all. And he did that. So now we go on to the response. So now Peter's just preaching to them, and they're just hearing this. You killed them. What is your response? And look what he says. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God 
having raised up his servant, sent him to first bless you and by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Love that. So now we have finished the passage. So what more is there in here? Okay, so there's a whole bunch in there. Again, basically that entire thing is Old Testament again. But let's go to third. So we have the, the first two, right? Jesus is God. Jesus is Savior. And now we go to Jesus is King. And I, I put the last two together here, and we're going to focus more on the fourth one. Jesus is King. He is coming back to conquer. Now you might say, that's an offensive word in our culture today. I get it. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Actually, it literally makes me feel uncomfortable to say it. But that's my issue. That's our issue. He's coming back to conquer, and it's good, because there is, there is no room in the new heaven and the new earth for sin or wickedness or unrighteousness. None. Because it hurts people, and he cannot coexist. It is a good thing. He is coming back to conquer. He is coming back to rule, and he is coming back to reign for eternity on a new heavens and a new earth. Physically, we're all going to be here for it, hopefully. Hopefully everyone in here. I'm, I'm going to be there. I'm moving towards it. I am working on that. I just keep praying. Stay humble. Keep following the Lord. Don't throw away what you have. Don't throw it away. Anyways, that is it. So we have the invitation. He is king. There's a whole message I want to preach just on that, on God's sovereignty, on how he is already all the things that he will be. That's, that, by the way, it changes the way you pray when you realize that. He's not like in a spot of weakness now, and then finally one day he'll come back and reign. He already reigns. He is just waiting to get rid of sin and wickedness because he desires that none should per uh, perish. That is it. He wants to show mercy. That's the only thing restraining him. And fulfilled prophecy, because he said he won't break his word. <laughs> he's, got, he's got fulfilled promises to keep. That's what that is. He's got promises to keep. All right. But the fourth one, there's an invitation and a warning. Repent, turn to God. Repent, turn to God. That's what repentance talks about turning, talks about bearing fruit. I was, I was, it's funny, I was going through my memory work, and Matthew 4, I mean, bear, uh, keep, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We're told to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We're also told to bear another fruit, and that is to bear the fruit of repentance in our lives. And you might say, bear the fruit of repentance, what does that even mean? Turn to God. That's what that means. Repent towards, turn towards God. Here Peter says, turn back to God, recognizing that they had been following him, but they had now rejected him. Turn back to God, not turn to God. Some of you need to turn to God. Others in here need to turn back to God. That's bearing the fruit of repentance. We turn to God. Deuteronomy, let's go back to there, because that's um, what Peter just referenced there. He was just talking about the prophet Moses said, well, let's go back to what he's actually talking about. Well, he said, I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. We were actually just reading three verses before um, with the first chunk that I put up there. Now we're three verses later, going to read 18 to 22. So I'll raise up a prophet like you. He'll be like you, a fellow Israelite. So this coming Messiah, this coming prophet that's going to lead them on the second exodus, the final exodus out of captivity from sin, death, and decay. No more losing loved ones. No more cancer. No more pornography. No more, like, no more brokenness, relational brokenness. None of that. It's all going to be gone. That is what's holding us in bondage now. The entire earth groans with anticipation, waiting for the coming of this day. That's what Romans says. Ugh. 
So he's talking about Jesus. And I'll put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words. Account. What is he talking about there? Judge. I will judge. This is God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. I, God, will call to account. I will judge everyone on how they respond to my servant, to my prophet, the second Moses, Jesus, the greater Moses. Then he goes, you, say, you might say to yourselves, how can we know if the message has been spoken by the Lord? You ever wonder that? How do we know? How can we know? Like, give me some kind of proof. They did that in Jesus' day too. So show us a sign. And anybody say, yeah, but doesn't it say that, you know, the sign of Jonah, like Jesus rising from the dead? Yeah, that was, that was the sign. There is a sign. So what is the sign? How do you know if this is true, what I'm saying to you? He actually gives us the metric to know. He says, if a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord and it does not take place or come true, that message from the Lord, or that message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet spoke presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. The fulfillment of prophetic words. What are prophetic words? God's promises are one way of looking at it, but God's promises of things that are going to happen. When God says this will happen, and it happens, that is a confirmation that everything in between that he said is true. Does that make sense? It's prophetic promises. That's why it was important the first 10, the 10 verses of chapter 3. Because first the man was healed, which alone already says something spiritual is happening. But it wasn't just a healing. It was a prophetic healing. That's significant. Because how do they know when it's Yahweh or when it's the devil? They lived in a time when, when people served the other gods. They saw miracles on both sides. So how do you know when it's Yahweh? Yahweh would give a sign. He would fulfill his promises from the Old Testament. And he did it again and again and again. And that was their proof that when he said, this was done in the name of Jesus, pointing back to kings, to the name in the temple, this is God, here is your proof what he said would happen just happened in front of your very eyes. And then he goes and says, and Jesus, you killed. God raised him from the dead, but God planned that he was going to suffer. Look, and then he goes back to Isaiah and says, look, he fulfilled this too. And if that's true, this is part of the gospel of the kingdom. If that is true, then he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Then he is coming back to conquer to rule and to reign for eternity. And only those who respond with a yes, who put their faith and trust in the saving grace of Jesus, will be saved and the rest will perish. That is the warning and the invitation. Just let that sink in. How do we know? God's prophecies, it's one of the best apologetics out there. One of, maybe it is the best. It is the apologetic given here. This is how we know when it's God. He won't allow the devil or you to be deceived by someone else fulfilling his promises. Only he is promise maker. Only he is promise keeper. And then there was one last thing in the verse that I thought was cool. 
Um, I even put it up there. Yeah, so we have forgiveness of, so this is the invitation. Repent, turn to God, and you will receive. This is the promise. So now you have the proof in the prophetic fulfillment, and now if you respond to that, to that, now you know it's God. You're sitting here, we're looking at the scriptures. If you're like, yeah, but someone just wrote this book. Oh, we just went through that in confident faith and all of the proofs for this book being reliable. You have to, you'll have to come up with answers for that. All of us will be held to an account. But if you respond by repenting, by turning to God, or by turning back to God, this is the promise that he gives you now. The same one who promised and, and fulfilled promises says, forgiveness of your sins, times of refreshing from the Lord, and salvation. You get to be with Jesus when he restores the heavens and the earth. But I want to do one more thing before our application, and that is just look at Genesis. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And again, going back to understanding the, the, the Abrahamic covenant. Remember when Pastor Ray did the grand story, and we spent like two months in just the covenants alone? And sometimes, you know, we wonder, well, what's the purpose of that? Well, they understood the covenants. And if you don't understand the covenants, you're not going to understand what God's doing in the end times. To know what he's doing in the end, you have to understand he's fulfilling his promises. So it's important that you know what his promises were. Does that make sense? You need to know what did he promise? What does he have to fulfill? It's what he already said. It's fulfilling prophecy. Anyways, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you will curse and you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right from the beginning. Sometimes people say, old covenant, get rid of new covenant. So old covenant was law and it was about just the Jews. And the new covenant, God got rid of the Jews, got rid of the old covenant, he changed. And now he's about the church and he's about the Gentiles. Nope. Go back into Genesis, right from the beginning, Genesis 12. We're 12 chapters in to this large book. 12 chapters in, and he says what? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's heart has always been from day one for the nations, always. That never changed. The new covenant wasn't a new idea for God. It was just the continued covenant, the continued testament. And it did change a lot. So how, what do we do with this today? This is what we do. We end by responding. The good news, if you're sitting here thinking the good news is for someone else and not for me, then you might be in deception now. I need good news every day. I'm not saying I get resaved every day. I don't. I don't think that's how it works. We don't lose salvation day to day like that. But the good news is for us, all of us need, the good, need good news. We are in a world that seems like it's getting darker. And I know some will argue, well, things have always, there's always been sin. There's always been brokenness. Yes, I get that. But we're seeing immorality be, be celebrated in a way like it hasn't been before in our nation's history. We're, we came from a, a, a Christian society and we're now living in a post-Christian society. That is truth. We're seeing hundreds of thousands of abortions every, every year in our nation under the guise of health care. And by the way, if you're in here and you've had an abortion, but Jesus, such were some of you, but you are saved by grace. You call upon his name, he'll forgive you. Maybe you have already. Then share that story with others. Share the hope, the message of the gospel, the good news. He came to save us from our sins. Share it. You know, I, uh, Craig Rochelle, um, 
I saw a post, I actually don't know if he did it or not, but I heard he quoted this. I'm gonna quote a thing that I think he said. He talked about a problem in our, in our culture today and it's called Christian atheism. I was like, Christian atheism? I'm like, what does that mean? People who say they believe in God, but don't live like they believe in God. We have a problem in the church in the West with Christian atheism. People that call upon the name of the Lord, but don't live like it's true. So today I'm gonna to ask that we just take a minute and go through this. Do it in your journal or your heart. If you don't wanna do it here, take a picture of it, do it later. Download the notes online because it's on there too. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Turn back to Jesus. There's obviously some things, the three categories I kind of look at it. There's like the blatant sin, like the immorality. Then there's the things God's asking you to do that you know you're supposed to do that you're not doing. That's also sin, it's a different, but it's different. And then there's sometimes, there's the sin of insecurity and fear. Remember the, the servant with one talent who was afraid and hid his talent? I think there's a lot of people that are afraid and they hide their talent because they got so much fear on the inside. They're afraid of failing. When you repent, then you can move to refreshment. going to start the last song now but if you're not done if you're if you're writing this down if you're working on this working through the steps with God right now then I would encourage you just to continue doing that during the song if you're done and you want to do it later then then let's stand and let's worship or sit and worship but let's respond to God let's give him our hearts Lord Jesus I ask that you administer to us we need the good news thank you Lord that you are a promise maker but Lord thank you that you are sovereign and you are a promise keeper all of the things you said would happen are happening before our eyes. We live in a time, we live in, in, in the best time in history because we're the furthest away from when all these promises were made. We've gotten to see the most of them fulfilled of anyone in history. That's a blessing. And Lord, we long to see the final fulfillment when you return to restore all things. Maranatha, Lord, we now give our worship to you.